Welcome back to Feminist Book Club, the podcast. We're not just about feminist books. We are here for social justice, literature, and media in all its forms. But we do that through an intersectional feminist lens. Thanks for being here. Let's get started. Hello there. I'm Sally Mercedes. I am very excited to be here with you today. I hope you're having a good day or at least a good reading year. I really hope. (laughs) Uh, This has been a rough year, uh, but any moment of niceness, I just really hope that you can feel it deeply. I was recently putting together a podcast segment on my favorite books of 2022 so far, or my favorite new releases, books that came out this year that I've loved. And in it, I mentioned that there are certain books that like, I don't even know how to recommend because they feel so specific to me. They feel like they were written for me. And I'm like, who else would possibly like this book? I don't know. I can't think of any. But the more that I thought about it, the more that I was like, oh, but these are the books that like, I just, if only one person out there read it upon my recommendation and was like, oh my God, I freaking loved it. Or if they've already read it and now you can hit me up on Instagram. <laughs> we can talk about it. We can gush about it. That would be a complete and utter delight and f- totally worth it. So I thank you for indulging me as I use this time to just gush about two books that reminded me of the magic of feeling seen in a book. Um, so I grew up in Queens, New York. Uh, I'm very proud. <laughs> On all of my dating profiles, when it asks, like, where are you from? I put Queens, New York. I grew up in Corona specifically, in case anyone wants to know. uh, But now, but then my parents moved to, well, I lived with them at the time. So I also moved to Belrose, which is on the border of Long Island. You don't need that much detail unless you're from Queens and then you're going to want to (laughs) know. But two books that I read this year that I just loved, I'm pretty sure that I cried reading both of them at certain points just from like how powerful it was to feel like, oh, this person is me. I have lived this experience. I know the places that they're talking about. I know the types of people that they're talking about. I know the situations that they're talking about because I too grew up a brown girl in Queens in like the 90s. So these two books are very specifically about that. But they're also really great, and I'm sure that other people would love them as well. And it's Brown Girls by Daphne Pelosi Andriatis and The Girls in Queens by Christine Candic Torres. These are very different books, so I'll talk a little bit about each of them. Um, but the reasons that I love both of them are pretty much the same, and I have already <laughs> shared them with you. So Brown Girls, I part of the reason that I love it is because it doesn't really fit into one genre. It I guess is a literary novel. I I guess. <laughs> it doesn't feel like that. It feels like a memoir told in verse, but like I know that it's not a memoir, but like it feels that way. It just feels so real. It feels like every single thing that is being described is happening. I can see it happening. And yeah, like it feels like a novel in verse, if that makes any sense to anybody. So I just really appreciated it. It does not have like one linear story that it's telling. It's a bit meandering. Like there's not a lot of um, 
I was going to say there's not a lot of specificity. There's a tremendous amount of specificity in that, like, the things are so specific and, like, well-described, but it's not like, here's Bob, and he went somewhere and met this chick and then they got into a car accident I don't know (laughs) it's not that (laughs) it's not linear at all Um, but that's what I loved about it I loved just like being in that vibe and that energy and still feeling seen through every word even though it's not that every single thing described in this book or in the girls and queens are things that I personally have experienced or even things that like a lot of my friends have experienced but it's like, you know, it's like a friend of a friend. Oh, yeah, that happened to them. Or I don't know, you just like grow up hearing these stories as of just by virtue of being a girl in Queens. <laughs> the Girls in Queens does have a more traditional narrative structure. It is a novel. Um, does it count as historical? I'm not sure where the line is for historical these days. Um, I guess it wouldn't count as historical anyway. I think it only goes as far back as the 90s. But it tells the story of two friends growing up in Queens. I believe they're both Latina. And just like how their friendship grows and then how it kind of falls apart through things that I'm not going to share what they are now because I didn't. I went into this book not really knowing anything about it. And I loved that. I have read the synopsis and it give some things away that I'm just not going to give away here, just in case you're the type of person like me who wants to know as little as possible. But I will say that their friendship devolves. I did know that going into it and I wanted to know how. And it's really compelling how. Again, like I really saw the the truth in the experiences of each of these characters and the side characters here. It is beautifully written. Both of these books are beautifully written. I loved the writing. And yeah, I've just had a tough time or I've been more hesitant to recommend them to people because I'm like, I don't know. Do I only love this because of how seen I feel? But like also I kind of want every single person that I know to read both of these books because of how seen I feel. (laughs) Like I'm getting teary. Like I'm getting a little bit choked up just even thinking about that. That's how I felt reading it. That's why it's like even if the things that were happening in the book themselves weren't like tear jerkers, I was just so touched by how much I was like, oh, fuck, this is me. This is who I am. And that doesn't happen very often. So I strongly recommend these books. Maybe it's just a me thing. Maybe a few people will read them and be like, girl, I didn't see it. (laughs) Which if that's the case, let me know that too. That's totally fine. But if you do read them or you have already read them, any one of them and you loved it like please do reach out hit me up on twitter instagram like well you can't really hit me up on the story graph but i am at sally simply on all of those platforms please do let me know and if there's a book that you love and you think is like super specific because of how seen you feel in it let me know that too like i want to read those books too i want to read those books that move you because of that because I do think that there's magic in that and that there's an audience for that outside of just that super niche identity so that's it happy reading I hope you're having a great life (laughs) love y'all I'd like to invite you to join the National Women's Studies Association this November 10th through the 13th at the Hilton Minneapolis for the annual conference 
The 2022 NWSA conference theme, Killing Rage, Resistance on the Other Side of Freedom, seeks to open up conversations about freedom and justice, salvation and sacrifice, convenience and controversy, and whose life and vote matters. At our conference, you can connect with other activists, feminists, and scholars from across the globe. This year, the keynote speakers are feminist leaders Angela Davis and Anita Hill and many more. Don't know what NWSA is? The NWSA is the world's largest group of feminists, activists, and scholars dedicated to advancing women and women's studies across the globe. So are you a feminist? Join NWSA at nwsa.org to become a member and to see more details on this year's conference. Again, that's nwsa.org or follow them on Twitter at NWSA or on Instagram at NWSA underscore IG. We hope to see you this November here in Minneapolis. Greetings, friends. I'm Mariquita Guerrera, and I am talking today with Barbara Borland, author of I'll Eat When I'm Dead and Fake Like Me. Wait, is it I'll Eat or I'll Sleep When I'm Dead? The first one is I'll Eat When I'm Dead, which That's is what it's I thought. Not like that... a, yeah, it's not a personal value of mine. It's a thing a very rich woman said in The New Yorker. Wow. Okay. Yeah. Well, yeah. Uh, that's amazing. Uh, I, at first, I was like, did I write that down wrong? <laughs> no, no, no. It's, yeah. Okay. Uh, author of I'll Eat When I'm Dead and Fake Like Me, which was a finalist for the 2020 Edgar Best Novel Award. Her latest novel, The Force of Such Beauty, was published July 19th. Barbara, it is such a joy to talk with you today. I am so excited to be here, Mariquita. Thank you so much for having me. And uh, yeah, I'm really excited to be on a literal feminist podcast. <laughs> lot. Happy to just be out here. Yeah. Yeah. Thank we, you. Yeah, we're glad to have you. This book is great. Um, could you tell us a little bit about your novel and the inspiration for the story? Like why this and why now? Yeah. So The Force of Such Beauty is the story of a retired athlete who marries the prince of a very small kind of money hoarding nation uh, on the Mediterranean coastline. And I started writing it five years ago, actually. It, took, it just took a long time. It is, of course, because it is the story of a woman who marries a prince, it is a fairy tale. And fairy tales are, they're complicated to write, you know, and it's uh, living, I was born after Angela Carter uh, really took the genre all the way to its max in so many ways. And, um, and I, and I don't write the kind of, it's not supernatural in the way that Helen Oyeyemi or Karen Russell kind of deal with, with a revamping of a folktale. It is truly a classic fairy tale. And so it just took me a long time to write, but I think it came out of gosh, wanting to dig uh, so much of the kind of princess narratives out of myself and try to dig them out of other people to try to figure out how much th this story uh, comes into our lives in so many ways over the years. And and what does it really mean at the end of the day is, is what I was trying to accomplish by writing yeah. it. So, yeah. I really appreciate that our central character, Caroline, is a disabled woman and a woman who struggles, like especially in the latter portions of the book, with mental health. Uh, why, did you, why did you make the choice to feature a character who is afflicted by chronic pain, trichotillomania, other health concerns? Sure. Yeah. So um, when we look at, uh, I think most women have those experiences. For starters, most of us, uh, childbirth is incredibly painful and complicated. I think periods are painful and complicated going throughout our bodies, staying, um, in a health, a level of health that feels good to us, that feels productive to us. It takes a lot of work and a lot of energy. And when we look at, uh, you know, actual princesses in real life, um, 
who are Caroline in the book is uh, what you might think of as sort of a common princess and that she comes from a, from a non hereditary monarchy background herself, but marries becomes part of one, you know, what the amount of work that they spend on their bodies is extraordinary. We see the same thing in female celebrities. They look like elite athletes. One of the things about kind of the interior corset internalized misogyny is that uh, when we, you can stand in a room full of people who all call themselves feminists and humanists and think of themselves as being thoughtful and caring. And you say the words Meg Ryan's face and there is like a ripple of disgust through the room. But like the thing is, uh, women's appearances have been tied to our economic futures for thousands of years. And it's something that uh, I think a lot of us participate in without, um, without choosing it. You know, it is, uh, it's, it's in the air, it's in the atmosphere. And so Caroline's uh, background as an athlete, um, I think really is a way into thinking about bodies, talking about bodies, talking about self, without trying to trigger some of that misogyny that we all carry around about, about what it takes to look that way. And um, she is a vulnerable person. You know, she, some of the readers on this podcast, if you paid attention to Meghan Markle, who, you know, Meghan Markle went to Northwestern. She played a lawyer on a TV show. So she is a pretty worldly, well-educated person. And you look at her and you think, gosh, didn't you know what you were getting into? And she really didn't, you know, and I was, I really wanted us to be with Caroline all of the way and, and think about the things that made her vulnerable to um, what is effectively authoritarianism. That's what the sort of baby I'm going to take care of you fairy tale is. It's uh, don't trust in your community, trust in me. I'm the only one that matters. And then, and then what would make her vulnerable and keep her there? And I wanted us to, to really, um, yeah, I wanted the reader to be, to stay with her and to feel empathy for her, even though she is not always, um, she's not always a hero in the book. Yeah. So, she, she yeah. goes, she goes from having her body, um, like controlled and monetized by a large corporation because she's a, you know, a professional athlete to having it more sort of overtly controlled and exploited by her husband and his family. And, and that's sort of, that's not like a, I think we expect, and we, unfortunately we expect and, and, and know that there's an objectification of cis women's bodies by media and the world in general. And, and a lot of that's internalized too in, in us, but this is really writ large. Like, you know, uh, you are seeing the internal thought process. You're seeing the way it feels like, like almost good, like safe at first for her because she yeah. um, keeps finding herself in these situations out in the world before she gets married, where people are brushing up against her, touching her body without her permission, sort of t taking from her. And there's this allure of safety and care in what her husband's promising her. But it turns into something sinister, almost reminded me a little bit of like the Stepford Wives. You know, yeah, yeah. So it just like kind of a hor a low key, subtle horror story all of a sudden. Yeah. What What was it like to inhabit that? Was that like? Well, be this is what kind of what all princess stories are. You know, when we first, uh, when I first started talking with my editor about this book, she asked if I was deconstructing a fairy tale, and I was just like, "I'm. It's a literal fairy tale. All fairy tales that have to do with princesses are narratives of state control over women's bodies." The happily ever after story is trading control over your reproductive future in exchange for theoretical security from the state. And the, you know, fair, fairy tales uh, that have princesses in them often end at kind of happily ever after. And that's sort of where the, the idea there is that like, that's where your whole women's identity ends. 
that we we exist because of our reproductive fertility and particularly i mean in a in a monarchy in a hereditary government that requires the use of women's bodies in order to maintain its economic stability you are quite literally useless once you have fulfilled that role. Uh, Princess Diana being the very most obvious example. You, she produced the heir to the throne and then you no longer matter. And I um, I guess like, yeah, personally I started, um, this is something that was, I don't know, brewing in my life. I was um, uh, in my mid thirties and uh, I had two books on the way and yet it still seemed that no matter who I was talking to her what I did that the question kind of in my greater life was um, when was I going to have a baby and what kind of job did my husband have? Those are like the two most important things that anyone could ask me. And it's, Absolutely wild. And it, and so it, wild. It was so persistent, so persistent. And I just, I couldn't, I, could, I couldn't, I was like, wait, did I, is this what I, is this what marriage is? Is this, and maybe it is what heterosexual marriage is, you know, like you can think you're as special and unique as you want you know, in this really kind of crude biological way, like the purpose of this is to kind of maintain, create more population and maintain a particular kind of stability in the culture. But that's not necessarily stability for me as a person. As we see in monarchies, you know, you have a breadwinner, you have a caretaker, you have a dependent, and the one who gets to go out into the world is the breadwinner and the caretaker, the princess is the one who stays at home. And I, um, yeah, so I started writing this book, um, feeling, trying to get it, uh, my own conditioning, what had I been conditioned to think and to feel about myself? And what had I been conditioned to believe my body was for? Yeah. Um, yeah. So yeah. Inhabiting this, I don't know. It books. I, maybe, uh, you hear the same thing from other novelists, but fiction, like uh, novels and characters kind of come to, they come to me anyway, in one fell swoop. You know, it's a perfect idea that I have in an instant. And then the work of making the book for an audience, that is what takes years of trying to figure out how to how to pull it out and how to shape it. Because I personally, like, I'm a huge reader. I love to read. I love the pleasure of a well-written novel. And trying to take something that feels in your brain, like such a specific idea, and then make it in, into this whole full 400-page narrative that keeps the attention of whoever is holding it you know that's that's what that's what it is that's what the job is yeah and and you really take back the curtain on like a lot of these a lot of these stories and uh in a way that it's easy to it's easy to follow caroline down through it because she is so relatable you know she's she's flawed but she's magnificent she's so confident at, at times you know like she's so assertive at times and then like cow to others it feels uh really dynamic you know we're all d- super dynamic people in different you. situations yeah. you know we show different aspects of our personality and i think that's what makes the conclusion and the story feel so damning we were told this story m- many of us were told this story the princess story everywhere you look still you know you see the princess it's everywhere story. Yeah. yeah and it's such a thin veneer it is just another form of control it's another form of of co-opting someone's ide- erasing someone's identity by denying yeah. them any aspect of their personal, any, any independence. And making them internally feel that that is valuable. You know, yeah. that is, I've got the glittery shoe. So there's something of value, even though I'm living in a prison, 
it is such a, it's a way to kind of break up, I think, female solidarity, honestly. Yeah. <laughs> um, and to, and to help us turn on each other. And I, yeah, I guess, you know, I did not, uh, I did, I did not expect that this book, it's uh, published on July 19th. So it isn't, it is a object of post row culture. And I did not think that would be the case when I was writing it at all. I was, I am utterly devastated. Um, and I, but I did, when I was writing it, you know, I was coming out of this legacy of, it's not like when we had Roe, everything was easy, you know, that yeah. even contraception, I mean, I'm not sure, I think this is maybe true in Wisconsin, but when I was, when I first started taking the pill as a teenager, I could only get three months at a time and I had to get a paper prescription from a doctor, you know, mm-hmm. like it was Adderall. And like, yeah. that's a huge, that's a huge barrier to access. Yeah. Um, all of the many ways in which, you know, you couldn't buy plan B, of course, until maybe I was in my mid twenties. I want to say you couldn't get it over the counter. All of the ways in which I always felt like I was on a leash and, and, and even my own, my own mother, of course, felt that way too. Right. We talked about the contraception thing and she told me it was just sort of her first, she was like, Oh, well, it was the same for me. And I was married, you know, and for mm-hmm. both of us, we, it was like this thought that even if you were married, they would trust you, yeah. but nobody trusts you. We don't, we're not trusted with our own bodies. And there's this beautiful, glittery, shimmery mirage um, that teaches us that we shouldn't be in solidarity with each other, that we should be competing to see who can make themselves valuable to a valuable man or a valuable person, even. It, It doesn't even have to be heterosexuality. It's just this kind of triad of breadwinner, caretaker, dependent. Yeah. And, um, you know, like socially, I don't, obviously that's not working for us in the long term, and it doesn't work for us either to see princesses as valuable and mothers as worthless, Mm -hmm. you know, like that, because again, that's if happily ever after ends at the moment that you become kind of reproductively meaningful, what is the rest of your life? Who are you for the rest of your life? If, if these are the kind of great female archetypes that we feed our feed children, like what, what does that teach them about what it means to be a middle-aged person? You know, it, anyway, sorry. No, no, please. <laughs> um, it, please don't apologize. Um, <laughs> there, there were so many pieces of this book that were phenomenal and, and I hadn't expected to see included in a, in a book that basically deconstructs or, or, or shows the reality behind a fairy tale. Like you, there's a lot of discussion about apartheid and the kind of violence that that is, you know, the like actual overt violence and the covert violence of apartheid and mirroring the, the sort of the state control, you know, it, it's uh that's not exactly what I mean, but it, it, there, there was a yeah. lot of political commentary in this book that was, refreshing. Oh, thank you. Yeah, I um you know the 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 prince's story baby I'm going to take care of you like that is really happily ever after. It's all all control all of it. You don't have to worry about anything. I mean, that's the story of authoritarianism. Yeah. And I think you know, we've seen a lot of cynicism about democracy both on kind of every side of the uh, of the political spectrum if you will. Everything from what's happening in Hungary um, to even, you know, your 
whatever, a casual acquaintance being like, I'm moving to Canada. You know, I mean, those things like that's a cynicism about our democracy. And I feel really lucky to be an American, actually. I feel really lucky to be part of, of what we're doing here. And I hope that we will all continue to just work harder and harder and harder to make it better. But that doesn't mean it's not hard. Yeah. Um, and South Africa, which is where Caroline is from in the book, we share a lot of things with them. They are a young, imperfect democracy. We share a lot of the same sins. Um, theirs are, of course, uh, so recent. Apartheid is so recent. And um, it is so profound. It's such such a profound part of their of their culture and their society of healing from it and trying to figure out how to move forward. Yeah. And um, yeah, and I've, I've had the privilege of of visiting there many times over the last 10 or 15 years. And I wanted to just, I wanted uh, the reader to be able to find a way to think about those things and to think about that shame and that conflict and those anxieties and those stressors uh, in a way that didn't necessarily immediately uh, hearken to their own experience. Mm-hmm. Well, I want to close out with a, a question that um a lot of folks that that host on this podcast ask a lot of different authors, um, what what is feminism to you? What does feminism mean to you? Feminism to me uh, means continuing to grow and adjust my understanding and perspective of what solidarity among women identifying people is as we move forward. What does what do our communities need? What do our societies need? in order to make women feel as though they move through the world as easily as men do. And that's all, all women, everyone who, who calls themselves a woman who thinks of themselves as, as being a, being a part of this group, you know, that's a, it's a really, it's a big world. It's a, and yeah, it's, it's continued growth. Thank you. What feminism means to me. Yeah, <laughs> that's an okay answer. Oh yeah, no, I think it's a beautiful answer. I love the the myriad ways that um, folks answer that question because it's. What does it mean to you? Can you answer? <laughs> <laughs> sure. Um, you know, it, feminism to me, I think has it's it it grows from a place. Um, I was always really like a, a really bellicose kid. Um, I I wanted to. I really wanted to fight for anything that I felt was right. And I wanted to fight any kind of injustice. And feminism to me isn't necessarily, you know, like aggressive, but it's strong and it's determined and it's forgiving and it's soft and it's caring. It's um, just caring deeply, wanting to listen yeah. to what people actually need and not dictate what I think it should be. You know, yeah. it, it's being present. It's being fallible and it's learning. It's just such a impossible con- concept to put down into words. Yeah, that's beautiful. I'm tearing up. Thank you. <laughs> Thank you for having me on this podcast. <laughs> oh, I'm so glad. I'm so glad to have you. Would you mind telling folks where they can find you online? Oh, sure. Yeah. I, um, I don't have, I have just a private Instagram account and it's really boring. There's nothing behind the curtain there, but, uh, I do have a newsletter. Uh, it's a rare, precious gem. So it doesn't come very often, but when it does, it's amazing. And you can find that at barbaraborland.com. Wonderful. And I'm Marikita Guerrera. It's so wonderful to talk with you, Barbara, about your book, A Force of Such Beauty. Um, 
And you can find me on Instagram when I'm there, which is rarely at O underscore Murray. And uh, until next time, folks, be well. Thank you for tuning in to today's episode of Feminist Book Club, the podcast. Want to be part of the club? Here's how you can join us. Obviously, subscribe to our podcast and leave a rating and review for brownie points. Follow along on Instagram, Twitter, Facebook, Pinterest, and TikTok. All of those links are in the show notes. Sign up for our newsletter to be the first to know what our next monthly book pick is. And check out our award-winning monthly book subscription service. Oprah Magazine named it one of their favorite book boxes, and Shonda Rhimes called us one of her favorite subscription boxes in general. There are multiple membership levels for any budget, and it's an excellent way to support the show and the voices you heard today. See you in the club. Well, Red Woman is a dangerous creature, creature.